So after scripture reading like that with two huge lists, one of things we initially might just see is a list of bad things and another of what we might see as good things, after reading that, it's crucial for us to remember where we are, both in Galatians as a whole and even just in this paragraph. Because as for Galatians, as we read this passage, we need to remember that this is toward the end of this letter in Galatians chapter 5. And that's because, as our series subtitle says, this letter has overwhelmingly been about the one true gospel, the true message about Jesus and how we're okay and right with God now and forever through what Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection, and about how we receive him by faith alone. And that means we don't obey lists of good things enough or avoid bad things enough to be saved. Instead, we're saved by Jesus alone. So that's what we need to keep in mind concerning Galatians, but then we also need to keep in mind where we are in this paragraph. Because last week we talked about how walking by the Spirit is the goal of this paragraph, and particularly on that, especially because of the verse right before our passage in verse 18, where the Bible says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Because of that, we talked about how walking by the Spirit isn't mainly about rules and law. And so walking by the Spirit isn't mainly then following rules. And so all that said, as we read this passage, we need to keep in mind the gospel where we're saved by Jesus alone and not by following rules enough. And that walking by the Spirit isn't about following law. But yet, all that being true, you still might be thinking, sure, that all sounds good, but these lists are still here in God's Word. And that's true as well. And so the question is, what do we do with this passage? What do we do here with these long lists? And to answer that in basic, and I hope we all hear this in basic, what the Bible is now doing here in our passage is not all of a sudden adding to the gospel. Instead, what's going on here? Well, very simply, Paul is now giving what these two ultimate options and lifestyles look like. What it looks like to be saved by Jesus and have the Spirit by grace or not. That's basically what's going on. And you can see this by how in verse 18, notice, Paul says about this first list, quote, Now the works of the flesh are evident, meaning they evidence themselves. And then you can also see this in how he famously calls the second list the fruit of the Spirit. And both of those are important because that then shows us that he's not saying now in chapter 5 here, don't do these things and do these things. We can read lists like this, like that sometimes, and in a sense, yes, we can apply these lists sort of like that, but technically and importantly, God's word here doesn't say that. Rather, it's actually saying, if you are ultimately defined by and living in the flesh, it will evidence itself like this, or if you are saved by Jesus and so have the Spirit, you will notice his fruit in you. Not perfectly, of course, but the Spirit will start producing these things in you more and more. 
And quickly on this, just in case you think that this is just a clever way of trying to interpret a hard passage like this, I hope you know that this sort of talking, even with the analogy of trees and fruit, doesn't come mainly just from Paul. Instead, as you might know, this analogy comes from Jesus himself. Because in multiple places in Jesus' teachings, he uses this analogy, and most famously, he does so in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Because there, Jesus says, quote, you will recognize them by their fruits, which is the same root word that Paul uses about the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5. Jesus continues, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or are figs gathered from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And so, as you can see, like Paul, Jesus' idea isn't do good enough to become a good tree. Not at all. Rather, his idea is that you either are a healthy tree or a diseased tree, which happens through trusting in Christ alone in the gospel. And so Jesus' point, and really Paul's point throughout all of Galatians thus far, is that's what matters Above all, what matters is what type of tree you are, if you will. What matters is for you to know Jesus and be born again through the Spirit and be a healthy tree by God's grace. And then the works, the fruit, only evidence who you are. And so all that said, that's what's going on here in these lists. So one last time, just to be crystal clear, all the things we're about to read do not add to the good news of Jesus Christ. (laughs) These are not things you must now do or not do in addition to believing in Jesus in order to be okay. That would be going against everything Paul has said thus far. Instead, these are about the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Which finally then brings us to our outline of how we will go through these lists in our whole passage together this morning. So with that covered, Now to see exactly what God has to say to us through Paul here, we'll have three sections this morning, three sections. And they're sections that are pretty obvious divisions as we're going to go through this passage. And so first, we're going to talk about the works of the flesh and why they're so serious. And then second, we will talk about the fruit of the Spirit and especially how the Spirit produces His fruit through us. And then third and finally, we're going to see how the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection relates to all this. So in some, first, works of the flesh, why they're so serious. Second, the fruit of the Spirit, how the Spirit produces His fruit in us. And third, how the gospel relates to everything. And so we'll start then with our first section together. And here again, we're going to be talking about those works of the flesh and why they're so serious. And for this, we're going to be in verses 19 through 21. But to begin on this section, we're actually just going to start with that first line of verse 19 because it's so important. We're going to look at it again. So look down there to start just the first line of verse 19. The Bible says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. We'll stop there for a second. So we already talked about this for a bit, but it is interesting, right? That the Bible doesn't start this list off here with something like, now sin is evident. Instead, It's now the works of the flesh are evident. I think that's often overlooked because when we often read a list like this, right, we just see these usually as a big list of sins. And of course it is. But the Bible, instead of calling these sins here, says they are works, meaning they're doings most literally, and they're doings that come from the flesh. 
And therefore, this isn't just a list of sins. Instead, specifically, we are all supposed to read this list coming up with the idea of this is what the flesh produces or does. Or to say it another way, our flesh itself is more of our sinful nature. And that sinful nature, unforgiven and left on its own, is the big issue. And then, this list is more about how that fleshly nature manifests itself evidences itself. So that's the opening on this list. That then does bring us to the list itself and what Paul says here. So now look down. We're going to read this first list, all of verses 19 through 21. So look down your Bibles, verses 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in these verses, there are 15 works of the flesh listed, plus that and things like these statement. And then after that, Paul's really firm about why these works are such a big deal. And so what we're going to do now is pretty quickly, we're going to go through this list, and then we will talk about why it is such a big deal. So look down at your Bibles again. We're going to go through this list. And as we do so, we're going to try to group what we can together. So let's begin first. Paul lists sexual immorality and purity and sensuality. And we can group these together because they're all similar in their meaning. And that's because first, as for that word sexual immorality... It is the word porneia in Greek, and that was a common word and idea back then. And it simply did mean any sexual activity that isn't in the realm of marriage. Any sexual activity that isn't within the realm of marriage. And that's because it was a common idea and, and, uh, and uh, pure, it was an idea back then that pure and legitimate sexual activity back then was seen as mainly being in marriage, and the Bible clearly teaches that as well. And so as for sexual immorality... It is sexual activity with someone that takes place with that person when you're not married to that person. So I want to be clear about that. That's clear here. That's clear in Jesus' teachings and in other places in the Bible. Which leads then to impurity. And that is a word that's similar to sexual immorality, but it simply has the emphasis of being defiled or stained by such sexual contact outside of how God designed it. And then finally, the word sensuality also has to do with sexual misconduct, but the emphasis there is on the pleasure, the seeking of the pleasure from an illegitimate sexual desire. And so that is the first three things listed. And they all basically have to do, as you can see, with sexual activity outside of how God designed it. And without spending too much time here, remember the Bible does overall have an extremely positive view of sex. God's the one who created sex. God endorses sex. And in fact, there's a whole book of the Bible basically celebrating sex in the Song of Solomon. And so to be very clear, sex itself is not the issue. Instead, these three works of the flesh all talk about sexual activity outside of how God designed it to be and to take place. And remember, God tells us these things because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And having these things listed first is interesting. We don't want to read too much into that. But it does show us all that sexuality is, and it always has been, an area of God's world that has really been broken and twisted by us as creatures. 
But moving on, that then leads us to the next grouping in the list. And that's the two works of idolatry and sorcery. And these connect because while idolatry is simply worshiping another god besides the living god, the word sorcery is probably related because it talks about the magic of trying to connect to these other spiritual beings or gods. Which leads to the next grouping, which is our biggest grouping. And these are the seven works of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and envy. And we can group all of those together because as you can see, they all have to do with how we treat one another. Right? With how we treat one another. Because enmity is hatred toward each other. Strife is arguing and disagreeing. Jealousy is a word that can have a positive connotation in the Bible. Like if we're jealous for God's name or for our spouses. But in this context, it's talking about being jealous for your own way. And then fits of anger is just actually one word in the original language, and it's talking about outbursts of sinful anger. Then rivalries is about selfish competition. Then both dissensions and divisions are about creating factions and divisions among people. And finally, that word envy is like jealousy, but it's more about holding grudges and not wanting what's best for others. And so I know it's a lot, but again, all those have to do with how we treat one another. Which, not to get ahead of ourselves, but it makes sense because if the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, if He produces love in us, doesn't it make sense that the works of the flesh would produce the opposite between us? Which leads to the last couplet in this list, and that's drunkenness and orgies. And these are often linked together because they're both clearly indulgent sins. And then finally, Paul ends that first list by saying, and things like these, which helpfully shows that this list is not meant to be exhaustive. Rather, Paul again is just giving examples of how the flesh evidences itself. And so that's the list. And I'm sure most of those do make sense. And applying all of that to us, it is true that if you see anything there that you do struggle with, having it be listed in God's word as a work of the flesh shows that it's something to work on and especially to repent of. Right? To genuinely repent of and not be content to live in, which we will talk about in a little bit. But that said, as we talked about that, as we talked about a little bit earlier, seeing these things as things to work on is actually not the reason in the Bible mainly for why they're listed here. Rather, the main reason all of those things are listed is to show this is what the flesh looks like and it's to warn us about something, which is what Paul talked about in the second half of verse 21. So look there again now, and this is why the works of the flesh are so serious. This is from God's word starting in the middle of verse 21. After that list, God inspires the apostle Paul to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's why this list is so serious. Because inspired by God, Paul warns, as he warned before apparently, which shows that this is something the Apostle Paul brought up multiple times to his churches, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a big deal. And that may even shake us up. <laughs> because remember, the gospel, which we have been talking about for months in Galatians over and over, is definitely that we are saved by Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But then we might read this and be like, oh no, <laughs> maybe we've got it wrong. Or we might think, I guess we do have to be good enough 
to be saved, apparently. And so the question is, what do we do with this? How is the gospel of grace true and what Paul says through God's, in God's word here true? Does this mean that the gospels that were saved by grace and by making sure we don't do these things? That's an important concern and question, but let me just answer it very clearly. Emphatically, no. Salvation is not by grace and by making sure you don't do these things. Let me say that again. Emphatically, no. Salvation is not by grace and by making sure you don't do these things. Instead, how then should we read this warning here from Paul himself, who so clearly taught us the gospel over and over in Galatians? Well, think about it this way. We should read it, as we talked about before, with something like Jesus' tree analogy in mind. With that in mind, we can see that Paul technically does not say here that we need to not do those things in order to be saved. Rather, he says that those who do and evidence these things will not inherit the kingdom. It's different. Meaning, he's making a point about those who, to use Jesus' term, are diseased trees and are still of the flesh. He's making the point about those who don't know Jesus and the gospel genuinely and how that evidences itself with these works. And now, to be clear on this, this also doesn't mean that we as Christians can't or don't ever sin. Because to be clear on that, while we may read it like that at first and be a little afraid of that, yet when Paul and Peter and especially the Apostle John in his letter of 1 John, when they talk about someone who does these things or John practices these things, they're talking about someone who is doing these things in a habitual way and not struggling against them or repenting of them. That is so important to understand. And we know this because the reality is in the Bible, even Paul himself as a Christian will talk about struggling with sin. And the New Testament letters will talk about Christians sinning and repenting, like we're about to see in Galatians 6 verse 1 to come next week. And finally, we definitely know that Jesus forgives Christians' sins. And so not ever sinning is not the point. Rather, the point here is habitual, unrepentant sinning in these ways. Living like this in any of these ways and not caring or thinking it's a big deal. And so that's what the Bible's getting at here. This list is so serious because it shows that if, if your life, so I'm going to be lovingly honest from God's word, if your life is about these works of the flesh and you are not repenting of them or struggling against them, it shows, as God says through Paul, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not forever be with the king. And that is not because you now need to do better and earn your way. That is not the gospel. Instead, it's because habitually and unrepentantly being of the flesh in these ways evidences that someone genuinely hasn't trusted Jesus in the gospel. It demonstrates that they haven't been born again through the Spirit by faith in Jesus. That's a really important distinction. I know that maybe that's tough, but that's clearly what the Bible says here and what the Bible says elsewhere in God's Word. But that then is our first section together. There's, there's a lot of works of the flesh that were listed, right? And there could have been many more. 
But for us, the main reason for us to see as for why this list is here is because it's not because if we fall into them, we lose our salvation. Or, and it's not because we have to not do those things to be okay with God. Not at all. Instead, those things are so serious because if those works are unrepentantly in our lives, if we are okay with living in any of them, it shows that we're off with the king. It shows that we need to repent and genuinely trust in Jesus Christ and the gospel by faith alone, which is what Galatians has been all about. So that's our first section. I know that was heavy. But that then leads us now to our second section. And here we're going to more positively transition, as Paul does, to the fruit of the Spirit and how the Spirit produces his fruit in us. And for this, we're going to be in verses 22 and 23. And to cover this, Like last time in our first section, what we're going to do is we're first going to go through the list and talk about the fruit. And then after that, we'll look at what Paul says after concerning how the Spirit produces his fruit in us. But even before we do that, just like how the works of the flesh phrase was important, notice, right? The Bible now doesn't call these things good things to do instead, right? Instead, Paul intentionally now calls this list famously the fruit of the Spirit meaning the Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. We talked about him all last week. He is genuinely in us as Christians. And as we walk by him more, as we talked about last week, this is the fruit he produces in us. And interestingly, as you might know, it does say in the original two that this is the singular fruit, not fruits, that the Spirit produces in us. I do think that's because if you want to think about it this way, the Spirit of God himself doesn't produce many different fruits, but a specific singular lifestyle. One which is like God, one which is like Christ, one which is like the Spirit. And so the fruit of the Spirit is, is the one thing he produces, and the fruit includes all these godly characteristics that he does in us. But all that said, let's then look at the list. And here we're famously going to see the nine things that make up the fruit of the Spirit. And instead of grouping these, we're actually just going to take them quickly one at a time. So to begin, you can look down your Bibles. You might even have this one memorized. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. And this makes sense because this is the main characteristic of our Christian lives as we trust in Jesus. Or as verse 6 of this chapter said, and we covered this weeks ago, our faith in Jesus works through love, meaning our faith works through loving God and loving people, as both are included in that word love. And second, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And this, this is fascinating, isn't it, that that's listed second on the list. Because we understand the importance of love, and, and we understand the characteristics to come, which have to do with others, like peace and, and patience and kindness. And yet, between the popular characteristic of love and all those outward characteristics comes the surprising characteristic of joy. Right? And in brief, this shows us that the Spirit of God really is supposed to and he does make us joyful people. This shows us that following Jesus, that walking by the Spirit is not supposed to be this drudgery or duty. Rather, it's joy. Walking by the Spirit, following Jesus Christ is to bring us and others more and more deep-rooted happiness. Which leads to the next thing on the list, and that's peace. 
I mean, if joy has more to do with gladness, peace has more to do with an everything's going to be okay belief and feeling. But not only that, peace also includes peace between others, which leads to patience. And patience is enduring whatever comes your way, but also especially it includes enduring and long-suffering hard things with others. And then is kindness. And kindness, let's be clear, isn't just niceness. Rather, this word that Paul uses here, he also uses in really important places, like in the book of Romans, to talk about God's kindness. And God's kindness isn't him just being a decent, nice person toward us. Rather, God's kindness is a full term that has this idea of his displaying his love and actions like the gospel or in his everlasting provision for his people. And so for us then, this characteristic here of kindness isn't just being nice. Instead, it's a benevolent love towards others, which leads to goodness. And like kindness, goodness even more so is a term that's used very frequently to describe God. God is good and God acts in goodness. And so do we more and more through God's spirit. Which brings us to faithfulness, which we sang about this morning. And now here, this word faithfulness means trusting God and being faithful to God, but also it means being true to others. Leads to gentleness. And gentleness is like kindness, but it really emphasizes the tenderness of God-like love. Which finally and lastly brings us to self-control. And it is this last one, which if you think about it, is a bit different than all the others. And I say that because compared to all the other characteristics listed here, self-control is really the only characteristic that has a lot to do with restraining the negative. Meaning the only one that has a big do not side to it. Right? That's really helpful for us to think about because so often when people talk about Christian morality or even when we can think of Christian morality and living a spirit-led life, we can so often just mainly think of the negatives to avoid. And of course there is that. There is this self-control. Meaning there is this aspect of controlling ourselves and our sinful desires, especially as we walk by the Spirit. And yet, notice that's just one of the nine characteristics of this fruit of the Spirit. Right? And this shows us that we really should think of the fruit of the Spirit as an overwhelmingly positive way to live. And so that's this list that makes up the one fruit of the Spirit. And of course, whatever out of those things you think you need to work on, whatever the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart to work on possibly right now, you should take it and apply it in that way. But instead of just doing that, that then leads us quickly to consider something about how the Spirit produces His fruit in us. And this is really interesting because I'm not sure if you've ever noticed But we love to quote and to put on posters that nine-part characteristic of this verse on the fruit of the Spirit. And that is good and right to do. But then, we almost always cut off God's word in the middle of this verse. (laughs) Because notice, verse 22 actually doesn't end after the ninth characteristic there. Rather, Paul continues and adds one last point at the end of this list, and that's, quote, against such things there is no law. And to be honest, I think we don't quote that part because let's be honest, it's, it's a little confusing. Because <laughs> we love the fruit, but what in the world does Paul mean that against such things there is no law? 
And studying this, I found out, I didn't know this until this week, that Paul here actually may be referencing a famous saying that came from Aristotle, actually, which makes this even more interesting. And Because Aristotle lived, the philosopher, about 350 years before Paul, and he famously wrote about a virtuous person. He obviously wasn't a Christian or even a Jew, but he famously wrote about a virtuous person, quote, against such a virtuous person there is no law. And so Paul, to bridge the context, may be referencing that, or that saying probably just became really popular in 350 years, that Paul is just referencing something popular in culture. But still, the question is, but what does this saying mean? Well, in brief, just think about it. What did Aristotle, what does Paul and God's word here, more importantly, mean when they say against or compared to such a virtuous person or such godly characteristics, there is no law? Well, it means that such a person or such characteristics really don't and can't exist because of law. Meaning, just because a law told someone to do these things. Instead, essentially what Paul is saying is he's saying, look at all these beautiful characteristics. These don't come about because of some law that's put up and followed. This can't be compared to just following a law. Instead, these beautiful things, this fruit, is because this is who the Spirit is. And this is who we are now. And this makes sense, just quickly, even thinking about Aristotle's example, because what did Aristotle get at when he said, against such a virtuous person, there is no law? Well, it's the idea that a truly virtuous person does good things not because they're told to by some law. Rather, being a virtuous person, they do good things and virtuous things because they actually are a virtuous person. That's the point. And so the idea of against such things there is no law is that. It's saying that this fruit, these characteristics, I hope we know, they don't spring up or exist because of some law. Instead, they are the fruit of the Spirit. This is who the Spirit is. This is what the Spirit himself produces in us. And that means we should look at this list as not a list of law-type things just to do. Or to further understand this, I think it's important, we can use a quick analogy. Because imagine that someone is really gifted at something like painting, really gifted, and you ask them to paint you something. Then imagine that when they did so, being really gifted, they painted you a beautiful painting. Well, if they did so, the point is they wouldn't have painted that beautiful painting because of some rule or law for painters that said, if you paint a painting, you must paint it well. (laughs) Rather, it's because who they are. Against such a painter, there is no law to be a great painter. They just are. Or to use another analogy, think of someone's love for their spouse or for their kid. In such love, people don't love because of some law that says you must love your kids. Rather, they love because that's who they are. Right? That sort of love doesn't exist because of law. And it's almost silly to think that way. And so in a similar way, that's what Paul's saying here, importantly, about the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things, there's no law saying that this is how the Spirit produces work in us, his fruit in us. He produces it. And with these things, importantly for us, they're not done by law. People led by the Spirit aren't producing these things because they're obeying law. Rather, it's because who they are now. And so in short, that's how the fruit of the Spirit is to be more and more for us. That's why we spent so long on that. 
And practically then, this means, yes, we should look at this list, and by the Spirit's help, we should try to see how we can display more of his fruit in our lives. But in the end, with this being the fruit of the Spirit, I think we should more look at this list and wonder at how God the Spirit himself works within us and changes sinners like us. And now that does not mean that we're supposed to be passive or anything as we seek to love or be joyful or patient or kind with others. Far from it. But it does mean that overall, we should look at this list and realize that where we are any bit loving or joyful or where we have any peace or patience or kindness or anything else, we should know who gets the credit. And that's because this fruit it ultimately isn't of us. And it certainly doesn't come about because we're just following some law. Rather, it really is the living person of the Spirit of God who is within us and produces this fruit through us. So that's most of our passage. We've talked about the works of the flesh. We've talked about the fruit of the Spirit. But that then leads us briefly to our third and shortest and last section. And finally here, to end this discussion, we're going to see Paul talk about how the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection relates to all this. And for this, we're just going to be in verses 24 and 25. We'll cover 26 later. But now, we're just going to read those verses. And as we do so, just notice if you can spot how Jesus' death and even Jesus' resurrection, in a way, are related to all this. So Galatians 5, 24 and 25. Look down at your Bibles. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So first, the way that Jesus' death relates to all this is, a little, is the easiest of the two here, right? But that's because in verse 24, Paul makes it plain that those of us who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its desires. And on that notice, he doesn't say those who want to belong to Jesus need to crucify the flesh more. That's not what he says. Rather, he says, those who already belong to Jesus, those who are his, have already crucified the flesh. Meaning, we are dead to that way of living. Right? That way of living is no longer us. And that's why we struggle against such sins when they come up. That's why we're not content to live in that sort of way. That's why we repent of them. Because it's no longer us. And so that's how Jesus' death relates to all this. But that then leads to verse 25. And to be honest, I have never, until studying this this week, noticed here how verse 24 and verse 25 connect. And that's probably because the ESV, I love the ESV, but probably unhelpfully here adds a paragraph break between verses 24 and 25. But notice in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. We're connected to Jesus' death in the gospel that way. And then what's next in verse 25? Well, Paul talks about how we live by the Spirit. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Rather, Paul's clearly thinking gospel here. Because first, he's talking about how Christ was crucified and how we, in a sense, as our sins were forgiven there on that cross, we died with him. But then he's also talking about what happens after crucifixion, both for us and obviously for Christ. And what's that? True life. In Christ, we've been crucified to the flesh and now we live. By the Spirit. And in basic then, Paul's point is, if that's the case, if with Christ we've died and now we're alive by the Spirit, quote, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
which is exactly what he said earlier with the walk by the Spirit, which we talked about all last week in verse 15. And so that, verse 16, and so that's then our third section about how the gospel relates to all of this. And thinking about it, it is such a great thing that God inspired Paul to put these two verses towards the end, especially after all those lists, because it really does show us, once again, that these lists are not meant to be read as things that we must not do or now do to be okay with God. Rather, here Paul finally makes it clear. The works of the flesh are what happen and what we don't repent of if we don't know the gospel if we haven't been crucified with Christ. And on the flip side, the fruit of the Spirit is the result of what happens more and more if we do know Jesus, if we do live by the Spirit. And so for us, this means that as we seek to walk by the Spirit, we once again and always need to keep the gospel in mind, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection life and of our death and resurrection life in Christ. Because in Christ, we've died to the flesh in that old way of living, and now we live by the Spirit. And so as those dead to our sins and crucified with Christ and those alive, verse 25 is basically saying, let's now act like it. As we're alive by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. And so that is basically most of our passage, church, about the works of the flesh and about the fruit of the Spirit and how the gospel relates to all of it. Which finally, though, very briefly does lead us to close with verse 26. Verse 26. Because this is how Paul closes the chapter. So we didn't talk about this in our main section of the message because basically all scholars agree that this doesn't really fit in, if you will, with the argument that Paul's been making. And so instead, it kind of just seems to be something, remember, these are letters. It just seems to be something that was going on in the Galatian churches that he wanted to address. And yet, that said, it is still in God's word, and so it's still important for us, especially because this is something that can happen in our lives and even in our churches. So one last verse, Galatians 5, 26. We'll read it and then quickly apply it. Look down at your Bibles. The chapter ends like this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So, so why is this verse here? Well, very simply, it seems that after listing all of that, Paul was aware of something that was going on in the churches that had to do with conceit and provoking and envying one another. And this relates probably to what Paul said earlier in verse 15, where he talked about not biting and devouring and consuming one another. And so this does almost prove that in these Galatian churches, there really was this infighting happening, even with these professing Christians. And it seems, therefore, that the Apostle Paul wanted to tell them once again that that's really not good and that that's something to watch out for and to avoid. And for us, this is a good final reminder as well because think about this passage and even just think about Galatians as a whole so far through five chapters, right? We have this grand gospel of what Jesus did for us in history and how we are saved by trusting in him alone. And we have the spirit of God, the third person, the Trinity, really with us, within us. And by his grace, we are able to more and more walk by him. It's all so amazing. And yet... We can also, knowing all that, believing all that, fall back into such silly and selfish things like being prideful and all about us or our opinions and provoking and arguing with one another or envying each other. 
And so it seems God had Paul put this last sentence here because the point is, if and when we fall back into those things, we're really losing the focus. Because as we've seen, that is not us. Instead, as those saved by Jesus, as those who have been crucified with Christ, we are those who amazingly live by the Spirit. And so rather than pride and being all about ourselves or envying or provoking one another, and really rather than falling back into any sin as those totally saved in the gospel of Jesus Christ and as those alive by the Spirit, the point is, let us walk, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let him produce his fruit in us.